Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. Uh, again, my apologies for not sending out the text sheet. Um, listen, there, there are two basic ways you can study the Parsha or create a text sheet for a Parsha, right? And many variations of each. One is, there's something I really want to teach. I can find it in this Parsha. I can challenge myself to, to find the commentary. And there the, I'm going to start reading the Parsha. I wonder what, what pearls it's going to deliver. And I never know way in advance before teaching on Shabbat morning or Shabbat afternoon, which way it's going to be. This week is the latter. I had nothing, there's nothing burning that I wanted to be teaching about the Shabbat afternoon. Um, I just started reading Parshat Shemot until something grabbed my attention. And this, this week, the first verse, which is a very banal verse, is the one that grabbed my attention and took me on a little rabbit hole that I hope you'll find as interesting as I did. So it starts with uh, Exodus 1, verse 1, Shemot Aleph Aleph, if you're following from home, the first verse of the Parsha that Michael read. And the words couldn't be more um, you know, simple in terms of for, simple Hebrew vocabulary, vocabulary and syntax. There are not many mysteries in the verse. This is the way the book of Exodus begins. The Eilish Shemot B'nai Yisrael, these are the names of the children of Israel, Habayim Mitzrayma. If you want, you could say, why is it a um, present tense verse as opposed to verb rather than a past tense verb, who are coming to Egypt. Clearly within Shemot, it seems like it's looking backwards on those who came, but sometimes tense in Hebrew is different than it is in modern English. Et Yaakov, the et here probably means with, because in biblical Hebrew, et doesn't only mean the direct object, but it means with. We have the remnant of that when you say, you know, bo et come with me. The et is et, et ani, et uh, with me. So they came with, with Yaakov, ish uveto ba'u. Each person came with his or her household. Actually his, why should I, why should I say what isn't there? With his household. Um, if you wanted to find something on the verse that was a source of curiosity or oddity, and you were really intent on it, what might it be? Like if you, if you had to say, hey, there's something puzzling about this verse. Does anything jump out at you? A word or even a letter hint hint? And there are two microphones on the table in case people, people want to speak so people on Zoom can hear them. Does it say Habayim and Ba'u? All right, good. So um, first the redundancy of the verb coming and then the two different tenses. So once we've said that these are the names of the children of Israel who are coming to Egypt, we don't need to know that they came the second half of the verse. Okay, that's one thing you point out. Anything else? Good, right? Uh, let me introduce you to the names of the people in this room. You wouldn't say that. You would say, let me introduce you to the people, right? So um, aside from the fact that I guess it wanted to grant the name of the book and the Parsha, right? It, uh, we needed a name for the Parsha, so Shmot, but um, uh, you actually don't need the word that, be, that, that becomes emblematic of the Parsha and the book, okay? I find the Vav interesting, right? Ve'ele, now Vav in Hebrew, Biblical Hebrew doesn't mean the same thing it does in English, but most books don't begin with the word and. You know, and if and if and if they do, it's very intentional to like uh, create kind of a poetic flow. Um, this is probably the way of resolving the question is that it's it's just a natural continuation. We think of there being a huge break at the end of Parshat Vayechi, 
um, and the beginning of the Book of Shemot. And this is the Torah's way of saying that the story continues. But all those questions are not nearly as good as however good and simple the verse is. We know what the verse is trying to tell us. So um, I wanted to see if there were commentaries who found something out of nothing, right? Because the verse seems to be a nothing in terms of midrashic material. Uh, and I almost always begin with Rashi. He's the parshan that I know the best. He's the parshan that I teach the most. Uh, sometimes he over uh, indulges a verse. Sometimes he's oddly quiet. I think when the verse uh, requires some investigation and here he delivered something that sent me down this, this uh, spiral staircase. So I'll read uh, because I'm on the mic and I want to make sure people, excuse me, at home ha um, have it. On the phrase, the Elish Shmot B'nai Yisrael, these are the names of the children of Israel. Rashi says, Af Alpi, and by the way, the reason why Rashi can ask this question as we can't is because Rashi knows the Torah by heart and we don't, right? And if you read each verse of the Torah with every verse of the Torah and Tanakh, in your mind with instant recall it's not even recall it's just there recall suggests you have to pull it up you know from from your files there is it's literally there for him he reads this and he's instantly like comparing it like like siri might to every other verse or phrase in the torah and he notices a redundancy not in the verse but comparing this verse to elsewhere in the bible in the torah even though god counted them while they were alive. Well, who was alive? Children of Israel. Bishmotam, by name. And uh, if you look in the English side of this, it tells you where. Back in Parshat, I think it's Vayigash, but it might be the beginning. No, I think it's Vayigash. We've got the very census that we're about to get in the beginning of the Parshat Shemot. We, we got it when they came down. So why do we have to reminisce about their, them coming down, right? We know exactly who were the 70 people who came down to Egypt. Rashi says, even though the Torah counted them, by name while they were alive, Chazar Umina'am Mitatam. The Torah comes back to count them again, even after they've died at the end of the generation. Why? Lahodia Chibatam. To inform us of God's um, love for them. Chiba is love or devotion. Um, so, so, fill in, uh, dear friends, in what way is it a sign of devotion? for God to count the tribes of Israel even after they have gone, uh, not only while they're alive. We saw, we saw a, a, a moment of that 17 minutes ago. What, what's the significance of, of, of mentioning someone's name after they've gone? Oh. Right, so, so we're constantly evoking our ancestors. When we say an El Male to mark a yurt site, it's the way, it's, the, it's, it's saying that love is stronger than death. Death is real, death is final, death is powerful, but we live a human realm where relationship can transcend the finality of death. And so we don't say, because we're not callous people, that since someone is dead, they're no longer a part of us. In fact, when someone has died that we love, we are feverishly trying to continue to make them be a part of us. And one of the ways we do it is by telling their stories and literally by mentioning their names, right? Actually, I wasn't even aware of this consciously that this morning in my Shabbat morning teaching, I was talking about lifespans and what it means to live as a Jew uh, connected, not just to the two or three generations that come before us, whose names we know, and the two or three generations ahead of us who we might know, but spanning forward and backward many, many generations that we live, really live, we live within all generations at all time. There's something tender about evoking 
or invoking the names of people who have died. It's a way of saying they're still dear to us. Can you speak in the microphone, Michael? Sometimes pay attention, pay attention also to the word names because the personal is the name. Um, he didn't remember my name. He didn't know my name. He never asked my name. All of those things say he didn't take me, what, seriously. Right. And he didn't, didn't address me personally. It's also a, a difference if you're taking a census. It's a very great difference if you're saying there are 70 or there is Joe and Jim and John and Ruvain and Shimon right. and Levi Yehuda. It's a very, a very different thing. It's a personal rather than a statistical. Good, right? So this is Rashi's way of saying God misses them. God misses these people and wants us to remember them the way God remembers them, as it were, because every one of those who have lived and have departed is dear to God. Rashi continues, that the children of Israel are compared to the stars. That God brings them out for the moment, forget what you actually know about astronomy, and imagine an ancient theology of astronomy, which is that God brings out the stars, right? Do, 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 and God puts away the stars. By the way, sometimes if you're in a really um, cloudless night, you, it, it's hard to not imagine that God has something to do with it. Uh, one of the nights I was in Israel, I was in Machtesh Ramon in the, in the Machtesh crater, and we got lucky with a absolutely cloudless winter night. And what we could see I took a picture of Orion with my iPhone, and it looked like it should be in in a um, yeah, like it, it, it was just yeah. Orion was that visible. And we were there with a really, you know, funky Israeli tour guide who had set up um, telescopes. And the first time in my life, I looked into a telescope and I saw Saturn's rings, like 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 someone had drawn them. It was it was it, it, I felt like I was looking at a mirage, but it was just sitting right there, right. So you can imagine why the ancients were out there. Uh, telescopes could have pictured a, uh, a god acting in history, placing them there, and then removing them. Um, that when God brings the stars out, and when God puts them back home, God does it by counting them and by their names. Now, there's something very significant here about Rashi saying, and I, I'm kind of giving away the punchline a little bit, that Think about kind of graphing, calling them by their names while they're alive, the people, with calling the stars by their names while they're being placed into the sky to light up the sky, versus calling them by their names when they have passed, compared to calling them by their names even when the night is over and, quote unquote, the stars are no longer needed. We'll get to that at the end of the text seat, but I think that what Rashi is saying here is that God isn't just... Um, relating to each of them individually in the moment that we see them and observe them and see their beauty, but even when they're going into obsolescence, temporary daytime obsolescence, God calls them by the names. Shinemar, uh, as we have in the in the 40th chapter of Isaiah, describing God, Hamotzi b'mispar tzva'am, God brings out all of God's hosts of stars b'mispar by enumerating them, lechulam B'shem Ikra, all of them, God gives a name, right? The ancients gave each stars a name, we give stars a name, God was the original name giver of the stars. Okay, so since 
Rashi quoted that verse from Isaiah, I wanted to look closer at the verse in Isaiah and a parallel verse somewhere else in the Tanakh, and then some commentary on that parallel verse. So the verse he's quoting from Isaiah, if you're following from home and you have a full Bible, full Tanakh, open up the, chap the 40th chapter of Isaiah, verse 26. And Isaiah says the following. Se'umarum, look up into the heights. Enechem, lift your eyes up to the heights. Kind of a version of, of Esa Enai, but in a, in a command. Lift your eyes up to the heights. Ura'u, and consider, look, take in. Nivara'ela, who could possibly have been the one to create all of them? Hamotzi, the Mispar the one who brings them out, the host of stars by, by number. Lechulam b'shem yikra, for all of them, God gives a name. Meirov onim v'amitz koach, because of the abundant strength and the vast power, ish lo ne'adar, the word ish here, which normally means man, is referring to the stars. Not, not one man, as it were, of the stars, not one of the soldiers of God's celestial army fails to come when God beckons them. Right, so this is an image, again, an ancient theology of astronomy, that the nighttime comes, and God, it's a, it's a blank, black canvas, and God calls each of the stars out by name, and when God calls them, they appear, and because of God's greatness, not one of them fails to appear. Right? So Isaiah is ascribing to God the celestial responsibility for laying out the evening sky. There's a parallel verse that is actually one of my favorite verses in all of Tefillah. This is in Pesuket Azimra. If you're, a, if you're a daily davener or a Shabbat davener, you actually confront this verse all the time, but you may not know that you do because it's never said out loud. It's in one of the, um, the verse, one of the um, chapters of Pesuket Azimra. In fact, I, I remember a somewhat humbling moment where when I started to come to, lear to learn about and love this verse, I was at a rabbinic conference. It wasn't my first year. I, I, I had been a rabbi for a decade at least. And we were discussing in an evening session our favorite parts of tefillah. And one of my colleagues said, oh, but without a doubt, my favorite part of tefillah is And I actually said, well, where is that? Which is very embarrassing to me because I daven every day. And I, I had, it clearly meant that I was davening every day, just skimming, surfing over the words. I had no recollection that I'd ever said those words in my life. And they're a part of Pesukei Simra. And ever since it, it was brought to my attention, um, I've uh, I've loved the verse. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, my first Kohaam article at Temple Betham quotes this verse. You want to go back into the archive, um, where uh, Tillam says, "God is monemi sparla kochabim, giving every star a number." L'chulam shemot yikra, very similar language to Isaiah. To each of them, God gives a name. And then I want to read the next two verses because the commentary we're going to read after this is actually a commentary on those three verses together. So that's what one of the things that God does. Gadol Adunenu. God, our, our Lord is great. Berav koach, and abundant in strength. Letfunato in mispar. To God's wisdom, there is no enumeration. There's no reckoning. Me'odeid anavim Adonai. God to the lowly gives encouragement. Mashpil rishaim. God brings low, humbles the wicked, adayar, it's all the way down into the earth. Um, if we were just studying uh, Tanakh, right, just looking at these verses, what might be the connection between the astrological, astronomical way of describing God in verse 4 
and what eventually becomes the description of God in verse six of encouraging the, um, the impoverished and laying low the wicked. But Mike, wh why that shift? Because at first glance, it seems like a non sequitur. Right? God is the God of the heavenly hosts and brings them out. Oh, and when you're down, God will be with you on your, at your side. Any thoughts as to what might connect those verses? Alan, you can take the mic. Yeah. Joey, could you close the door? Give it a, give it a zets. There is, okay. there is a connection between four and five dealing with okay. Okay. a different use of mispar. One is like, well, it was counting number, and the other is something beyond reckoning. And then as between those two, there might be like a, a linkage somehow to uh, the, the sixth verse, the, the verse six dealing with um, uh, as part of that, uh, so you can't understand it, that because his power, because God's power and wisdom is beyond reckoning or understanding, he can say that, well, God's giving courage to the lowly and brings the wicked down to the dust. Okay, so we have the word mispar in verses four and five. It still, to me, seems like a thin connection to verse six. Mm. Um, and that's okay, because it's, it's, it's I, I don't have an obvious answer to this, but the commentary we're about to read does. I'm wondering if anyone else does. Deborah, and then Irv. Alan, can you bring the microphone over? Deborah. Um, it seems like... Lahav deal, but to borrow an image from our host culture here, you know how Santa has this list with supposedly every child in the world on it who's naughty, who's nice. It seems like don't worry if you're down and people, you know, bad people are bothering you because God has enough power and enough time and bring out all the stars every night one by one and put them away and don't feel small. Don't feel like a little lost point because there's plenty of power and for for you too. That's lovely. That, that's, that comment's going to be like a second cousin to what we're about to read. What you're saying is that the connection between describing God as in charge of the celestial hosts is the, the God upon whom I ask you to rely is the God that is so powerful that even control, if God can control that, God can control you or it can help you, right? It, this, this is a God of, of grandness and of grandeur. Irv? Yeah, I think Alan speaks to the connection. And as Bill Clinton said, the um, rich don't need a government, just like the people who need need God are the poor and the uh, and uh, and to get rid of the wicked. And we could use them right now. And 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 the God that we're praying to 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 be in, to be involved in that is the God that is the God of things well beyond our reckoning. So certainly God can is 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 capable of, do, of working down here by the way you can flip that theology also right if 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 god is in charge of the heavenly hosts does god god really care that you're in a bad mood today right like that the problem with that theology other problem the interesting of it is that it, it also it turns in on itself right uh to quote micha goodman who says that there should be logically an inverse relationship between your sense of the grandeur of god and your sense of God's interest in any individual thing that you do, right? Whereas normally in the, it's in the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox world, it's not an inverse relationship, it's a direct relationship. Because my theology is so great, that's why this halachic act means so much. Micha Goodman would say the opposite, right? And the, and the greater your sense of the God concept is, the smaller any individual religious act must be, because how could a God who is, who is that 
you know, care about this pixel, right? So if this were a raw theology class, we'd go deeper into that. I want to read to you the, with you the commentary of the Malbim, a 19th century Ukrainian sage, Rabbi Meir Leibish ben Yechiel Michal Wisser. That's a great name. Um, he, by the way, was, um, he was a from ast astrologist, meaning he, 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 he's known in his writings to spend a lot of time on the zodiac and on our relationship to the sky. And what he keeps on doing in many of his commentaries is try to draw a distinction between the way they view those signs in the sky and we. We see that they're there. They're using very general they. The they who find astrological meaning in them and the we who find some order in them, some beauty in them, but we try very hard not to imagine them as, as prophets or as, um, as oracles. Okay, so this is the Malbim on the verse from, from Tehillim. And just to remind you the flow, we got to that verse from Tehillim from the verse in Isaiah, and we got to the verse in Isaiah because that's what Rashi brought to describe God's relationship to the names of the Egypt, Israelites coming down. This is what the Malbim says. This Malbim itself could take an hour. We're going to do it in three minutes. Neged ma shahan hagat akum. Akum is a uh, acronym for Ovdei Kochavim Umazalot, which means those who worship stars and astro astrological signs. It's a, it's a way of referring to idolaters in general, but here it's actually very particular. Those who find meaning and prophecy in the stars, as opposed to the way that Akum relates to these things. With respect to their understanding of the zodiac system, and the the order of nature, Bahamazalot, and the and the um, again the zodiac signs. Mazal here doesn't mean luck; it means uh, referring to the signs in the sky. One second. Correct constellations. Omer, what I say is Shebahan Hagat Hateva. In the way that the natural world works, Lo Nir Kolkach Koach Hashem, God's power is not as apparent. The izuzo and God's strength, the chokmato and God's wisdom, kemo as it is, bahanhaga hahashkachayat habechirait. I'm not sure exactly how he's forming those words because um, I know what he means, but it's it's a strange Hebrew formulation. But he's saying how however much like beauty. And, and, and regalness you can see in the array of stars in the sky, that does not express God's wisdom and God's power and God's might nearly as much as the way in which God operates directly in our lives with hashkacha pratit, the personal supervision that God has over our lives, interwoven with free will, the, the free will way in which we live our lives, right? So if you want to be amazed don't look up to be amazed is what he's saying. You can look up to find beauty, and there's some structure up there. But you want to understand God? Understand God in somehow figuring out that you have the, the, the will to decide what to do every single moment, and still God is in charge. That's amazing. That says something about our Lord, right? Unlike the, the, the they, the akum, who find God's greatest power, or the God's greatest power, up in the sky. This is now him quoting the verse. Because yes, it is true, to these stars, God counts each number. And because God counts them, it's a divine number, right? Astronomers obviously would disagree with him. It's a fixed number. 
Who determined the number of stars? God, right? And by the way, it's not like astronomers have really figured out a better answer to that. I mean, how, why are there the number of stars that there are, right? We, we will all live and die without anyone giving us a tremendously satisfying answer to that, right? So according to the Malbim, God decided. God is in control of the stars, not that the, that the stars are in control of God. And then he continues with the verse, God gives them their names. Every one of those stars and constellations has a name. On its individual strength. He's, he's skating close to the notion that there is something up there that is powerful, that there is something to the constellations and to the zodiac, but he's going to say it's underneath God's supervision. It's not beyond God, it's of God. You might believe, it depending on you know, which, which um, you know, column in the newspaper you read about the Sagittarius, this one uh, influences life, the Zeosher, and this one influences wealth, the Zechorban, this one influences destruction, the Avdon and loss, the Chadom, etc. The Imkain, but because each of them, don't think that because each of them represents something powerful in the world, it means they are of great power. They're of limited power because they all, they're like the ancient idols that the, that the ancient ones would worship. They are responsible at most for one small aspect of human, human, humanity. They are limited. In number, the misparam, the number. And even in the quality of their work. So again, he's nodding to the fact that maybe it is possible to think of those constellations up there as saying something about life, but they're limited. But with all that, he now starts commenting on the next verses in Tehillim, which we read before. But our Lord is greater even than that. From the perspective that God is our God, and supervises us with personal supervision, right? Providence, right? that has nothing to do with the array and the, um, the system of astrology. And with that, now again, he's quoting the verse, all the words in bold here, and you can't see the bold on Zoom, are the direct quotes from the verse from the previous page. And with that, God is Rav Koach, God has great power. Which, which illuminates God's great ability. And because of that, God's, um, wisdom has no reckoning. You can't possibly understand it. There's no end to God's wisdom. Now, this is the Malbim's connection of the astronomy, astrology to the individual person. And in the way in which God finds a way to bring encouragement to the, to the low, and who somehow finds a way to bring low those who are filled with hubris, in the way that God is individually involved with our lives. Set aside for the moment whether or not you agree with that, just lean into what the Malbim is saying. Since according to astrology, you might say the stars think that this person is destined to be low and humble. And this person, I read it in last week's paper, is destined to have his glory raised. Yishadeid et ha The word yishadeid here is very interesting because shin dalad dalad can mean two things. It can mean to rob, to steal, and it can also mean to overpower. And they both work here. 
right? He's saying that because the star's impact on our lives at most is limited, God robs or overpowers any astrological system that you think has meaning. It's God's individual involvement in our lives that is the way in which God's power and wisdom is most easily seen. So where we've gone so far is that God counted the names of the children of Israel that came to Egypt because God loved them as God loved the stars. God loves them when they're alive, visible. God loves them even after they're gone, when they're no longer visible. And God loves them by being interactive with them. And God shows what God is in the world, not by yielding to some kind of uh, celestial system. It's the celestial system that's yielding to God. Last commentary, which is what gets to the punchline that, that is the reason why I'm teaching this whole class. Siftei Chachamim is a commentary on a commentary. It's a commentary on Rashi. So they're one of four or five classic uh, commentaries who read, read through Rashi the way Rashi reads the text. On the phrase in, in Rashi, which we saw on the beginning of the bottom of page one, where Rashi is describing why God counts the census again, Rashi said, and these words are in bold, chibatan, to, to show the amount of tenderness that God had towards them, um, that they were compared to the stars. What the Sifte Chachamim is saying, what's the connection between, between saying, on the one hand, God compares them to the stars, and that shows how much God loves them, right? That's, Rashi says that at face value, the question is, what's the significance of that connection? This is what the Siftei Chachamim says. Don't ask, even though the only reason he's saying this is because he knows that people will ask. Don't ask, well, what in the end is that tender devotion such that the comparison to the stars, the answer is obvious, he would say. It's not obvious. If it's obvious, you wouldn't have had to say it. <laughs> you can say the following, and I love this. Just as the stars exist, right? He knew it, the Sistik Hachamim knew enough to know that God isn't just placing them there at night, right? But that they exist and they illuminate during the day, but they illuminate in a way that we can't see them. And at night, but during the daytime, they're not seen. Mishum, because he did, he's a, quotes here a phrase from the Gemara, Shraga betihara mai ahane. What is the purpose of a lamp, of a flame in the middle of the day? Kach heim Yisrael. So does God relate to Israel. They, we exist and God cares about us in this world. haba. And in uh, the world to come. And then the phrase, vav kuflamid, which means vekal lahavin, which is a wonderful rabbinic way of saying, it literally means, and this is easy to understand, which is their way of saying, this is not at all easy. Right? Now, that last analogy is interesting because you can read it both ways. Let's see if I can get it out right in English. You can either say that Israel in the, which is Israel's comparison to the stars during the day and which is them to the night? You could say that our comparison to the stars during the day when, sorry, our comparison to the stars at night when the stars are visible and useful is us in this world when we're alive and doing mitzvahs and praying and saying Elohei Abraham, Elohei Tzchak, Elohei Yaakov. That's us as stars at nighttime when we are apparent and us 
beyond the grave are like the stars at daytime, where we're there, our souls are eternal, but we can't dot anymore, right? What's Lohametim um, Yahalleluya from Hallel, right? Once we're gone, we can no longer praise God. Or reverse, right? If you see that what we're doing here is just an alleyway to the ultimate experience, just part of some aspect of, of Jewish theology, that that we're right now stars during the day. Like God doesn't really, God doesn't really need you to wave, wave, wave the lulav like this. Does the God of the heavens need you to wave the lulav to be okay? No. But what God needs you to do is to live a, a life such that you earn an eternal olam haba. And when you turn, when you earn eternal olam haba, you become one of the stars at nighttime, illuminating God's firmament. What? And I don't know which way, way, way he meant it because I can't interview the Sitei Chachamim. But I think you can read it both ways. What I love about this, bringing back to the original verse, is the following. Why does God count the Israelite, the, the children of Israel when they're dead? Because he still loves them when they no longer pose any utilitarian function to them. And so much of our love is a base human mortal earthly love where we love when we can get something out of it. We love when we can provide when when the object of our love can provide something good to us, pleasure, or uh, or a gift or a favor, right? And it's a divine type of love to love the stars even during the day, to love our loved ones when they're gone, when there's nothing practical and direct they can. How do we translate that into the love of the people who are alive? How do we love the people in this room? the people in our families, the people in the community, the way God loved the children of Israel so much that he counted them even after they died when they went down to Egypt, and the way God loves the stars even during the And I think from this one banal, simple verse, we can extract a challenge to each of us to not be so harsh on ourselves because we're human after all, and human beings act like human beings, and it's natural for us to connect our relationships in ways that determine what we can get out of it, how do we stretch ourselves to love a little bit the way God loves? Not because we can get something out of someone, but because to love and to care and to be tender is an extraordinary way of being, no matter what we get in return. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.